The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life tips. Life tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Welcome your hosts, Byron White and Amanda Smith. Hey, everybody. We are back again with Life Tips Radio, the summer edition in which Byron goes off and gets to enjoy an awesome vacation and Mandy is stuck back slaving in the office. Crap. But I will say, at least we've got some great guests on. Uh, we've got Professor Curtis J. Bunk on with us today. He's going to be telling us about how the world has changed with the advent of online technology and, and uh, education. Um, so we're going to be talking about some really cool educational ideas and how everything has changed, and he's going, to be, uh, he's going to be schooling us. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Professor Curtis Bunk will be with us. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Your company's website sucks. You know it. Everybody knows it. So get a to-do list to fix it. On Target, a subscription service from Future Now and Brian Eisenberg monitors your website 24-7. Analyzing the actions of every potential customer. It gives you a to-do list. It tells you exactly what to fix and how to fix it. So that more of your visitors do what you need them to do. On Target pricing starts at $1,000 a month. See more at futurenowinc.com slash on target. Are you happy with your landing page performance? Discover how to improve your landing page performance with ConversionCredit.com. Brought to you by Engine Ready. Turn your underperforming landing pages into cost-effective sales-producing machines. Be sure you're not wasting your precious PPC budget. Conversion Critic tools give you the ingredients to create high-converting landing pages. You don't have to be an expert to use Engine Ready's Conversion Critic tools, but you'll feel like a landing page pro. Take the guesswork out of increasing your conversion rate. Visit ConversionCritic.com and boost your conversion rate for free. That's www.ConversionCritic.com. Hey, have you got that number for Cherry's Pizza? Look it up on LocalPages.com. LocalPages.com. Well, what if I wanted a business number in Miami? LocalPages.com. Can people find your business online? Be seen with LocalPages.com on every local listing in all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, Amazon, and Ask. With over 6 billion quality searches a month and bids starting as low as one set, get connected with local consumers at the exact moment that they're looking for you. San Francisco, Green Bay, London. I told you. LocalPages.com. List your business on LocalPages.com now and get $100 in free local advertising. LocalPages.com, bringing your neighborhood to you. Inboxed, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And now, back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Hey, everybody. We are back, and we are talking with Professor Curtis J. Bunk, the author of The World is Open, How Web Technology is Revolutionizing Education. Hi, Professor Bunk. How are you? Doing well, Mandy. How about yourself? 
I'm great. Thanks very much for joining me today. I'm all by my lonesome. So tell me a little bit more about your book. I know that the book just came out, and uh, I did have some time to read through at least the first half of your book, and I've got a list of, of about 30 questions for you. So give me a recap of the book. Well, geez, if you got 30 questions, you probably should go right to them, but let me give you a brief. <laughs> uh, basically, what we're trying to do in the book, or what I'm trying to do is say, hey, you know, um, Thomas Friedman is maybe uh, spot on in terms of the world becoming flatter for businesses and, and economic uh, conditions. But uh, in education, the world's become open, and it's become open for pretty much anybody around the world at any time of the day to learn from anyone else who they can contact. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, last week I talked to China instead of flying to China. I did a webinar from my office. Um, a few minutes ago, I got an email from Hawaii. Some folks had uh, videoed me when I was there in uh, June, and now it's up on YouTube for people around the world to watch a little section that we had done. So yeah, the basic notion is that, you know, we've got e-books, and we've got wireless, and we've got, uh, you know, uh, Facebook and MySpace and all these personalized learning tools and wikis. And, and how do we make sense of it? Most people are overwhelmed, so I tried creating an acronym called We All Learn that makes uh, the ten trends that I see maybe come to life for some people and overcomes their, uh, their confusion and frustration. Now, what started your interest on this topic? I was, reading, uh, I was actually reading your online blog, and I know that you've, you've traveled all, of, all over the world. Um, you were saying that you're, you're sort of the Indiana Jones of, of the educational world. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your background and how you got interested in this. Well, I'm a former CPA and corporate controller, and, and I was bored doing that. So uh, at night, I was taking uh, correspondence and television courses from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I'm actually headed in an hour. And um, I, the courses I took with someone there, I ended up going to Madison for grad school, and I worked on TV courses myself there with the same person, Dr. Robert Clausen there. And so I got interested in distance learning in the mid-'90s, or mid-'80s, I should say. And now things have really accelerated in the past few years as I traveled to uh, Korea or Finland or wherever I go in the world. I was in Saudi Arabia a few times recently, in fact. Everyone seems to be adopting e-learning strategies. Everyone seems to be interested in integrating technology, maybe to save money. Um, Everyone's sort of uh, a little bit hesitant, too, about uh, and, and overwhelmed, as I said, with all the things that are happening. So I guess my travels have told me that, hey, let's just wait a year. Let's sit at home for a year and just no television, no friends, and write a book. And it's actually become two books. There's going to be a free ebook mm-hmm. uh, with all the with extra stuff, extra content, same chapters that I'll post in a month or two at worldisopen.com. So uh, two books, and this is a big undertaking and just trying to help people out. Well, the ebook certainly goes right along with what you're what you're preaching, huh? It sure, yeah, the, the world is open, you know, and that's, that's the real premise here. And, and I just finished an article for Leader to Leader magazine, and I ended with that notion that, hey, there'll be a free ebook, and I'm trying to, you know, you know eat my own medicine, in effect. Uh, there's a, pe- a pre-call and a pro- postscript up already. I've written a postscript in the form of a, a letter to the learners of this planet and the ten learning responsibilities that we all have and ten learning, learner rights. And people, might, people can find that already at World is Open if you're interested. I just posted that last week. So, yeah, um, everyone's making courses available. MIT right there by you all in, in uh, Boston area started this mm-hmm. off about seven years ago with a big announcement to put all their course materials up on the web. And now hundreds of universities around the, the world and K-12 schools and corporations are also doing that. Interesting. Um, 
Well, before I jump into the thousands of different questions I have for you, give our listeners a little bit of the scope of, of online learning these days. I mean, it's, it's gone beyond just online courses and, and online tests. Um, give me an overview of, of sort of where education has gone in terms of the Internet. Oh, sure. You know, in the 1990s, most people called it shovelware. You know, they were shoveling up content that they had. That was the, that was the easy route, hey? Now in the 2000s, people are getting their courses to be more interactive and engaging. Whether we have live demonstrations of colossal squids, you know, uh, being looked at by researchers in New Zealand, shown to kids around the world live, you know, so they can find out it has eyeballs the size of soccer balls and, you know, a translucent body. Or in the past, they'd have to wait five years for that to get in a book, you know. Mm -hmm. so, um, so in effect, science becomes live. That, uh, the, the link there's a recent book called The Link where there's a video on YouTube made available the day the book came out and all sorts of other materials. Uh, the research itself got published the same day. Uh, so instantaneous access to science and, and new knowledge is part of the reason why it's different today than maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago. We have synchronous events, video streamed events with people around the world. You can bring in guest experts. You can have flash animations that enhance uh, your uh, reading of a book with the little demonstrations, and soon e-books. In Korea, where I was two months ago, they want every K-12 school to only rely on e-books with embedded simulations and animations and study guides and all sorts of things, and that's coming here. And so you know, the, the, there are so many different things that, that are happening to enhance a course. So we might call it supplementing or blending a course. And then there's a notion of putting the full course online. And so it causes people some misconceptions, I guess, about online learning when they say, well, it's not as good as face-to-face. -face. And in fact, the recent research shows that it's better and that uh, blended is actually the best where we have both, some face-to-face -face and some online. Now, I, I will say I, I have trouble seeing both sides of the coin here. I am fully in support of the idea of opening up education to everyone. You know, everyone should be able to learn. Uh, education should not just be for the privileged, for the lucky. But there's also this idea that, you know, so what if some of the educational opportunities out there are not um, of the highest caliber? You know, what happens when, and, and I hate to use this as an, as an example because I don't know a whole lot about it, but University of Phoenix. You know, some online institutions don't carry the highest reputation. What happens if we start seeing uh, a watering down of these online educational opportunities? How do you sort through what's good, what's valuable, and what's not? A really interesting question, and it's an important one that we're all facing. In fact, the president of the University of Phoenix uh, has asked for a copy of my book, uh, and uh, he's got an op-ed piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education yesterday kind of explaining where they're at. So I think... University of Phoenix people would like to have their reputation enhanced, too, by having you know, better criteria on, on their own courses and so forth. But we have to think about the learner first. And in the past, there's been, as you kind of pointed out, a lot of people left out looking in through the back door. And today, with this online education, with open ed, there are actually quotes from MIT where kids at in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and Iran are learning from their contents and finding out that their college-level material, that this, this, you know, they're enjoying the content. There's no instructor behind it. They're not getting college credit for it, but they can see that they can learn from something. So informal learning is exploding, number one. So, so when we think about is, are we watering down things, I actually think we're pushing things up. And if we, as instructors like myself, put up examples in our courses that are 
every semester get better? You know, we have a student who always excels, and I put it up on the website. In effect, I'm pushing the bar higher for people. I'm making it, actually, the course is more difficult for people. There are, actually, what you're saying, though, is true, too. We've got a lot of people trying to get, uh, you know, diploma mills out there and, and getting, uh, you know, degrees from doing nothing. And so branded degrees, getting a degree from a recognizable institution is probably still important, and it will continue to be so for the next decade at least. Uh, at the same time, those that maybe we don't recognize as well and are, might offer free stuff, like there's a new university called the University of the People, created in Israel, where they're taking all this open content and adding facilitators and mentors to help you learn from the free content. Well, if you have no choice and no money, that's not a bad option. So um, I think we're at the point of figuring this out and sorting through what's good quality and what's not, but at the same time, billions more learners, not hundreds more, not thousands, but billions more people are going to be learning from online, and that's significant. Mm-hmm. Now, you bring up an interesting point. When I, when I first cracked open your book, I was thinking of education in terms of America. You know, it's, you know, educational systems, very formal institutions. But what I didn't think about were, was the, the opportunity for learning now in third world countries with the advent of more online opportunities. So are we seeing more of a boom in, in learning in, uh, and educational opportunities in third world countries because of this advent of, of Internet educational systems? Of the 11 universities that have over 100,000 students, eight of them are in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's something like 15% of Asians have Internet access, but they make up 40% of, us- of Internet users. So when that 15% goes to 20, 30, 40, 50, it's the majority are going to come from Asia. So uh, the first point is that we got to get access, but I make a point in the book that the digital divide is kind of a misnomer, that maybe, in fact, we don't have to solely focus on access there are three stories in the book, two in the, in the hardcover, one in the e-book, uh, about uh, places in Nepal and China where they don't have computers, but they're still impacted by people donating time and money and resources to a community that then can provide resources. For instance, the 1KG project. You go to the web and you sign up to bring one kilogram of stuff with you to western China to visit kids. Mm-hmm. But it's not the one kilogram of stuff that you bring. It's the fact that you go there and visit them and form friendships and bond, but the Internet enables it to happen. They have a second project called Twin Books, where you go online and buy a book, and a second one is donated to kids in western China. And then there's the Room to Read project, where um, a guy named John Wood quit his job at Microsoft to create libraries and schools for third-world countries like Nepal. So to answer your question, it's complex as always, but yes, um, it's these people who are getting access to education didn't have it previously, and they don't necessarily have to have a computer to do so. Same is true in Africa, and I have a story in there you might want to read about a guy named Godwin Agudi. Um, well, here's the, here's the next question for you, and maybe you've already answered this in terms of um, you know your your uh, understanding of of the learner, but. How do people go online and, and determine what's real and what's not with regard to things like, and here's a classic example, Wikipedia. You know, how, how do you go onto an educational resource and determine whether this is a valid educational resource or it's not? How do you sort through? Or is that really just part of the process, is learning to sort out what's useful and what's not? There are various methods to do that. One could be an instructor or a university or a school creating a portal of approved resources. 
and schools in particular have to be careful about security issues. So they're they're typically doing that already with with review boards within their schools. And given there's 53 trillion pages I heard of content online, you know, there's enough stuff that's good that they'll find that they can put into a portal. And at the university level, instructors can do that, and I do that in my courses. Uh, but there's also this notion of crowdsourcing. There's a book called Crowdsourcing by Jeff Howell from Wired, where he talks about people deciding what's good and what's what's high quality. So there's various ways, and it, there are now organizations that are forming conferences and journals, like a, one called Merlot and another one called Connections, that become, in effect, portals or referatories of links, of approved links with peer review around them. So there actually are, are ways for the peer review process to occur on the contents that are put up. And you look at YouTube. People look at YouTube and say, it's just entertainment, you know. I'm, I'm doing research on, on YouTube and what makes people share and watch and show them. And, and uh, YouTube just created YouTube EDU so that they can distinguish the higher quality contents. And actually, universities have channels within YouTube. And for K-12 schools, there's TeacherTube so that um, you know, they can find contents relevant for the K-12 area. So at first, all this stuff typically gets plopped into one space, but over time, things get sorted out and categorized, and then we make sense of it. So, and, and let me just go back to the earlier question about uh, third-world countries, just a brief comment I, I forgot to mention. There's a university in India, Indira Gandhi University, that has over 2 million people. And, and I, I spoke at a place in Thailand at uh, Ramkaham University, 600,000. And uh, the Open U of Malaysia went from no students seven, eight years ago to over 80,000 today. Mm-hmm. So when you see the growth of some of these places, and, and that doesn't mean all these people are getting degrees. That means adults in the workplace signing up and get, getting a degree when they find the time to do so. But there's a lot of people who are interested in, in learning. Now, do you think that, that in the coming years we may see a movement away from the traditional educational systems? Do you think that more students will be applying to online universities versus, you know, traditional schools? You know, we kind of, in, in China, for instance, they, they outlawed, in effect, online learning and blended learning until SARS. And, you know, in New Orleans, online learning hit big after Katrina. And in western China, after the earthquake, my friends were sending disaster relief courses that they had translated from U.S. universities to help out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we see this, this kind of shift happen, and it's often reactionary instead of proactive. But, and we also have more people wanting to learn. So I, I don't think we're going to see a reduction in the number of universities in a serious n- way. We will see some, um, nor in the number of schools. What we will see is more learners in different types of universities and different types of schools and corporate universities and informal learning agencies that arise to meet the needs. Uh, there'll be niche markets. There'll be people that figure this out more quickly than others that fit that niche. Uh, my own program has a master's online in instructional technology that, if, hey, if we didn't have it online, we'd be in serious trouble right now, to be honest. So you know, go ahead. Well, do you, for, do you, for example, think that, that more people, because, I mean, we're in a down economy right now. People are really hurting for money. Maybe a lot of parents can't afford the $48,000 a year price tag that, that Boston University carries, but maybe they encourage their kids to do a, a, a more affordable educational, you know, educational opportunities online. Do you see something like that happening? It, it will happen, and it does happen during this economic crisis. 
Another thing that those courses do, though, is for unemployed people, and, and in fact, I just wrote about this uh, for eLearn Magazine. If anyone wants to go online, just look up eLearn Magazine. I wrote up 30 reasons why we're doing, why we're doing this, 10 reasons why an institution would offer things free, 10 reasons why an instructor would, and 10 reasons why a learner would even use it, why an unemployed person might. And among those are, for instance, you might just find out about a career you never heard about previously and then explore it through these courses and, and then maybe sign up at Boston U if you get really excited. But don't spend the money, that, that's expensive stuff, until you're really truly passionate about something. Mm-hmm. So it, it can kind of jumpstart people into a new field or, or career. It could also pr- give professional development. Now your question whether or not people could maybe even put on their uh, resume that they've taken these free online classes and in effect self-paced themselves through a degree. We're not at that point yet, but that's not unfathomable. I think it could happen. We will probably have a two-tiered system then of people who have self-directed their own learning experience and those that have paid the, the, the huge dollar amounts. I know with two kids in college what that, what that means and what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But about 10, 20 years from now, we might see a different view on all this as mentors and what I call in the book, I, I end with 15 trends, super coaches and mentors is one. And, and when, when super men, mentors and coaches exist who understand the Internet, who understand counseling and human development, and who understand the discipline, then there's some unique possibilities that might happen with this free content. Um, let's see. Well, how about uh, how about um, sort of the secondhand fallout of people who may be seeking online educational systems? Do you see that uh, traditional libraries may be a, a dying ground? Yeah, the library is an interesting place right now. If I was a librarian or cyber, I'd be a librarian really quickly. Mm-hmm. And actually, in Chapter 7, I talk about library thing. It's one of the most interesting websites I've been to, uh, where everyone can place in library thing your books that you have at home within seconds and join conversations around them in the largest online book club. So um, the notion of what a library has changed there. I mentioned in many of my keynotes that I think the library is the most important facility, whether it's virtual or physical, in a university or school or a corporate setting. If you look at our own library here at Indiana, it's been transformed. You walk into that place, it's like Barnes & Noble or you know, uh, some kind of cafe place. It's a, it's a meeting ground. And I think that makes a lot of sense. When I was in Scotland, there was a place that, uh, that they had built uh, a new facility that had a library on one floor. It had private learning on another. It had community-based systems on another, a cafe on another. Um, that was a Caledonian University. And I think that makes sense, too. So I think we have to rethink the neighborhood, the community feel to a library, and then also what the mission is. I think, you know, outreach, extension, and libraries might be the most important areas of a university 20 to 25 years from now. And today, outreach definitely is not the most important. It's down near the bottom end, and libraries are somewhere in between. But I think with proper vision and planning, Oh, libraries are going to be the fast. They may be the only place left, actually, as all the instructors are teaching online. Well, you know that's really good to hear. I was I was a little worried for a time there that um, you know online learning, the internet would would sort of phase out libraries, that they would become something of a book museum, which was just such a sad thought to me. I love the feel of a, a good book, but um, you know that's good to hear that that libraries are also evolving to keep up with the changing pace. Oh yeah. 
it's uh, it's a fascinating place. Just visit a, a university today and just watch people. It's a, it's an informal learning extravaganza. Mm-hmm. Now, what else have you learned in in a lot of your travels? I know that you were talking about uh, the different ways in which people are are learning, not just with regard to online learning, but um, with regard to uh, stagnant learning. You know, the, the people are not just watching a video on on a screen and then taking a test or spending a certain amount of times uh, a certain amount of time online. That they're actually getting out and and doing real world activities to further their learning. So, what have you seen during your travels? Oh, sure. And in fact, right up the road in Maine there, they have the laptop project where kids are collecting real-world data and analyzing it and sharing it. But, you know, in my own classes, we have students doing uh, YouTube videos instead of just watching YouTube. And by the way, watching YouTube is not a bad thing. Um, if you find the right videos, it actually gets people to connect with the contents. They see a visual of the researcher, and they get really excited and passionate. It's hard to explain, actually, what happened last year with a set of YouTube videos that my students watched. But so my students might create YouTube videos. They might create wiki books. Instead of reading a book, they might write a book themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a professor at Old Dominion who has his students create a book. Each student writes a thousand words, and then they vote on the best. That, you know, there's three students that write each chapter, and they vote on the best one. It goes in the book, and then they read that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you've got students doing podcasts. I had a student actually do a, did a podcast series last fall on libraries of the future. And then I had a, a, a president of a university, of a, a private university in uh, Illinois come to visit me, and he said, I want to build a, uh, a library of the future. And I said, listen to my student's podcast from last semester. And he did, and he, he's interested <laughs> in hiring her. So mm-hmm. when you have students who, you know, are active with technology, who are, you know, who are actively engaged in simulations or role play or debate, um, it makes the learning come alive for them, and, and so that's what, that's what it, it enables you to do. It also enables you to do some more kind of supplemental, as you point out, more passive things. So you can do both. Now, we've got to wrap up soon, but I do want to hear from you. You're very clued in. You've got, you know, you've got a blog. You've got a website. You've got Twitter. Um, I, I see you all over the social media sphere. Um, how do you see the new websites like Twitter, like Facebook, furthering education opportunities? Because everybody's on them. Do you see them as great learning resources? There's a professor in Tallis, uh, my name is Perry, Dr. Perry, who has 30 ways to use Twitter. And I've I've been talking about it myself. I'm not there yet on Twitter. I find it a little bit invasive, but I do update my status in Facebook. Um, I think that there are a range of technologies that are safer for people and more comfortable. And then there are those on the bleeding edge, you know, like Second Life and Twitter and Facebook. But I also think that iPhones and iPods, and the iPhone applications and the applications in a Facebook are going to also offer mobile learning that uh, really will impact people around the world. I read a number that 60,000 people an hour are signing up for mobile devices around the world, you see. Uh, So, yeah, like uh, 20,000 people a day in Rwanda or something, in India, 7 million people a month, uh, just phenomenal numbers. Uh, you know, in, in Latin America, there's a pocket school project where the little MP3 players in the kids' pocket, and their parents might be Im- migrant workers and don't have schools or teachers, so they have someone that, something that helps them teach them. So there's, there's just untold possibilities today, and I'm trying to bring them back into the book. And if you go to the worldisopen.com website, you can get some free stuff there and send me an email and a note at uh, curtis at worldisopen.com, and I'm happy to reply to folks if they're interested. 
That's awesome. Thanks for that opportunity. And so I guess the moral of today's story would be that there is absolutely no reason in the world that you cannot continue to further your education. There's there's no, you know, cost preventing you from doing it. There's no time preventing you from doing it or, or capabilities that you always be learning, right? Let me just put a quick little story. We should be learning till whenever, you know, until I hope till I'm 100 and beyond, you know. Uh, I'm interviewing a girl who's 11, and she's the world's youngest teacher. She, she wrote a book at age 8, and she endorsed my book. She wants to teach my class, my graduate class, my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she's written three books and types 100 words a minute, and her name's Adora Sivtek. And there's, oh, my she God. She teaches kids in schools online, and she learns online. And so there are people who are, you know, um, musicians who only can learn online at, at young ages. She's a literature person. You know, she writes books. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll be learning from young um, times till way past retirement, and that's important and exciting. That's really, we're becoming a part of a, a learning century. You know what, can so I read her, her little endorsement here? This is fantastic, and it's so well written. This is uh, Adora Svidtek, 11-year-old teacher, author, and speaker. The World is Open is such an inspiring story for the 21st century. The subject matter is especially important to me because I use online learning technology to learn and to teach. I love how the stories of people using technology to learn the book make so <laughs> to learn make the book so relevant. Not only is each story inspiring and motivational, but they are also practical, providing many ways for readers to open their own world of learning. That's incredible. The world's youngest teacher. That is just unreal to me. That's incredible. Yeah, she was eight when, or seven or eight when she started, and she travels the world. And, and there's articles people can read online, and she's got hundreds, if not thousands, of videos of her teaching available for other kids to watch to learn how to do grammar or you know uh, geography or whatever it is. Um, she's she's just super. And imagine if we had a thousand of her. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> Well, thank so, you so it, much it, for joining us today. Do you want to uh, just you know, tell our, our listeners where they can find out more about you? I know you've got a, a couple of different websites. Sure. You know, my, my homepage is linked off the World is Open website, and, and all the web resources for the book are in there. So if you want to explore anything we've discussed here, and there's lots of language learning sites. So I, I imagine many of your learning listeners, or listeners want to learn Chinese or Spanish, Life Mocha, Chinese Pod, they're all linked in there. Um, just take a look, uh, all the references that we've mentioned, the prequel, the postscript, uh, and uh, send me a note. So thanks for having me here, Amanda. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I'm sorry Byron didn't get to hear more about it, but um, we will certainly be, be following, you know, uh, worldisopen.com to learn more. And uh, I would encourage everyone else to check it out, too. Enjoy your e-learning journeys, everyone. Thank you. That's great. Thanks so much for joining us. And that's it for today's show. Uh, We'll be back next week. Hopefully Byron will be with us. I I really miss having him on the show. I hate doing these shows by myself. But anyway, uh, anyway, uh, I hope everyone has a great summer, and uh, we will be back next week with more great Life Tips guests. So take care, everyone.